This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut. Opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapol, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. When it comes to unfinished films, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind has received a lot of attention. But what happens when a film isn't finished, and in fact, goes flat out missing for years? That was the fate of Shirkers, a do-it-yourself independent film that Sandy Tan created with her friends and a mysterious mentor in 1992. Now, Tan has made a documentary about the experience, a playful but poignant memoir about that lost film she made as a young woman in Singapore and what happened afterward. There's a lot more to the story, and for our latest film comment talk at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Sandy Tan talked about her experience in front of an audience. She was joined by Fariha Zaman, a frequent contributor to film comment and also a filmmaker. Here's their conversation. I'm really excited to talk to you about this film because I, I also first, not, I think not at Sundance, saw it at BAM Cinema Fest and was totally floored. I think it, it reflected some kinds of the like cinephile, like young cinephile and artist experience that I hadn't quite seen on screen before. And I think I told you, I um, the next time I went to see it, I uh, insisted that my best friend from high school oh, right, come with yeah. me. And I think it's a, it inspires people to do that. Like, it really makes you immediately think of right. the people who spark, sparked your creativity when you were young. Yeah, cool. How's it been reuniting with all the people, first for the film and now again as it's in theaters? Um, oh, yeah. So it's it's also playing at the Metrograph, not just Netflix. Um, if you're in New York, go see it on the big screen if you can. And, um, and the music hall in L.A., I think. The music hall in L.A. Tell your L.A. friends who want to see this yeah. in the theater. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And otherwise, uh, it'll be available on Netflix for a long time to come. <laughs> yeah, a long time to come. Yeah, so how was it like to reunite with... Okay, so I should talk a little bit about, in case nobody's seen the film, nobody knows what I'm talking about. How many people have seen the film, out of curiosity? Oh, wow. Well, okay, okay, so some people, this yeah. is still going to just pique your interest. Okay, so it's it's a it's a film about me making a film. Uh, it's 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 a you know many many years ago in 1992 in Singapore um, when nobody was making these mo- nobody was making movies. Me and my my teenage friends. I was a teenager then growing up in Singapore. We made a, a road movie called Shirkers in which I played the lead character who was kind of a teenage assassin, kind of. And um, and I wrote the movie and and played the lead. And with my friends, we shot this thing with an American man in his 40s, it's not a spoiler to say this, that he kind of, um, he ran away with all the footage once we finished shooting the film. And it was a heartbreaking experience for all of us. And, you know, this film is about me kind of recovering the footage, recovering the friendships and recovering actually my youth, I guess, um, that had been lost in the process in the last 25 years. Um, it actually sounds more interesting the way I'm, than, than what I'm saying, because it's, it's kind of, dull way of putting it. Um, but yeah, so that's basically it. And so I guess what you're saying is that that process kind of fractured my friendships with my friends who were involved in this film. And making this version, I'm sure, because forced me to 
kind of get in touch with them again. Um, and so what was that like? Mm -hmm. And and what was that like was making this film, because I'm such a lousy friend, I am somebody who doesn't really call and doesn't really, you know, write. And especially because the three of us were, were so bound by this um, traumatic experience that we didn't have to talk about it very much. We just were always kind of linked by this memory of this experience. And um, we don't have to talk for 20 years and, and it would just seem like yesterday. So so this film, when we showed this film at Sundance in January, it was the first time Jasmine, that's Jasmine, Sophie and me, the three of us, had been in the same room um, you know, in 20 years, I think that was so, 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 but getting in, back in touch with them when I recovered the film, the, the footage that was stolen um, was difficult because it's, you know, you understand once you've seen the film that they are two very different personalities. Um, Jasmine's still like super angry about everything. Sophie is extremely sad about everything. She's always, you know, just talking about it just makes her cry. Mm -hmm. She's the nicest person in the world, the most sensible, most, you know, articulate. And Jasmine's not the most reasonable person in the world. Um, but how about one you? Of most, one of the most color <laughs> colorful. I'm actually the cold fish in the middle. As I keep saying, I'm the the mm, filmmaker. And, and that comes with this distinct tang, I guess. Um, I guess getting the film back was kind of my way, my excuse to kind of say hi to them. I mean, I, I, it sounds very facetious that that's my way of saying hi, but really it was. And it was like a way of reopening a conversation, which also meant reopening old wounds. Mm -hmm. um, and the film is also about, you know, the evolving friendships like of women over time, which is something that I find extremely compelling, but it's very rarely caught on film or TV in a realistic manner where it's very prickly mm -hmm. and it's not pretty. Well, and I think your your use of the word old wounds, something that it's important to understand yeah. is that you it, it's about a moment of trauma in your life. And I think it's such an interesting and complex way of of approaching that idea of like, how do you revisit trauma? So there's the fact of you wanting to do that, you know, with the other people who were involved in this experience, but also like to reevaluate your own relationship yeah. to, to, to something that you in many ways couldn't change. Right. So whose voice are we hearing? Oh, that's my and the voice. Tapes. And mm -hmm. that's, um, oh, and then the, the, the tape was um, George Cardona, who's the guy who, you know, most people who've seen the film would know that was the man who, who took the footage away from us, who had been our mentor and our teacher in film class. And we, we directed this, he directed this film and, and then he ran off with all the footage for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So he, he would send me, um, you know, taunting, tapes in the in the intervening years just so sick <laughs> but you have to watch the movie uh, the ones <laughs> we haven't seen it um well you know i know that in the film you talk a little bit about how you spent a long time trying to process um this the experience of like losing this footage and and coming to terms with the fact mm -hmm. that you know you you thought you'd never see it or hear from it again yeah. um you but you pushed f film away from you for a period yeah. of time you wrote you, you know, what, so what was it like after so many years of saying, I can't, I cannot imagine making a film again, trying to make a film again? When did you decide to make this one? I was always imagining making films. So that was the thing that I was, I was always imagining making films. I just maybe wasn't making them. So I was making them in different ways. I was making them in my head. I was writing scripts and I was writing a novel. And I was made, I was made, I made some short films as well. But, um, but it was, you know, it was it was a huge process of me making the interior, exterior, the the pro 
just making this film was kind of finally bringing everything. Because the original Shirkers was me as a kid, like trying to explode what was inside myself, which is like, I was just full of ideas. And the original Shirkers was me as an 18 year old, 19 year old writing the script and just stuffing everything I wanted into a screenplay. Um, and we shot the first draft, and and all the people I cared about in the um, you know in Singapore in my life then were in the movie. You know whether it was my grandmother who played my grandmother, my baby cousin who played my baby cousin, and all my friends were somehow involved in this in this whole adventure. It was an adventure. Um, so when that was taken away, it was like a huge chunk of my life just kind of ripped the uh, just that went into a black hole, and and I just didn't know, you know, how to retrieve that. And so finally, when the these 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 boxes were returned to me, the boxes of film, like there was 70 cans of 16 millimeter film that was returned to me, um, totaling 700 minutes with storyboards and pictures and everything connected to the making of the film was returned to me in seven boxes um, between 2011 and 2012, when I was already a grown up. This is like, you know, 20 years after we shot this film and I moved to LA, I was a different person. I was grown up, I thought. Um, and um, and it was this this kind of a ghost from the past coming back into my life, and I just didn't know what to do, and I just put it all in the corner, as you do for ghosts, you know, when you're trying to move on with the rest of everything, and not think about it um, for the longest time. It was, um, you know, maybe it was three years, and I would say that because it's a shocking time amount of time to let go. Um, three years before I could open those boxes and look inside. Mm -hmm. Um, because it was so dark and so traumatic for me that I, I just didn't, I knew that once I kind of, you know, started, began kind of fighting with this stuff, I would, it would be a battle I would be drawn into that might last a long time and cost me a lot of money and maybe my, my psychological <laughs> well-being. Um, and so I, I knew that it was a huge commitment mm -hmm. and I, I, I knew that I had to be ready for it. So I spent three years getting ready to open those boxes and look in there. I mean, it was really, it was like a Pandora's box. I mean, all these things. Um, and and then I, you know, when I found the stuff, it was um, the cans, you know, because George is a really strange man. I mean, his impulses was so maybe even foreign to himself. Mm -hmm. So he, he wrapped up each of the, the rows of film and with black plastic garbage bags. Um, so each, every single role was kind of pristinely kept, even though he, he stole this mm -hmm. footage and was traveling around the world with him and um, wasn't going to do anything with him. There was a part of him that just wanted to keep it pristine. I don't know why. I mean, this seems mysterious still to me. Yeah. But so for my purposes, maybe he thought someday somebody was going to find this treasure. Um, and, you know, it was, it was actually kept in, it was a great puzzle just getting the film back. I mean, there's a, because most of people, you know, most of the people here have seen it. I can actually say that it, was on, it wasn't like they were all returned to me all at once. It was another set of puzzles oh. to solve and they were kept in different places and I had to retrieve all 70 cans and finally find them and they were, you know, all together, put them all together again. Um, and um, yeah. Oh, I was rambling. No, not at all. I mean, yeah. it's that that's the thing. It's a complicated film. And and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, you know, the, a lot of the words you use and the way that the trailer is cut, you know, conveys the reality that it's like, it's a little, it's a thriller. It's a ghost. It's appropriate for Halloween. It feels like a ghost it's a movie. Halloween movie, yeah. Yeah, you're haunted by the ghost of this 
thing. Oh, my, you my don't know if it's also, dead or yeah. alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think it's strange that people talk about documentary as if that is in and of itself mm-hmm. um, a genre. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's just a no. mode of. It's how you. It's it's how you source the material you're using. Yeah. But it can be any number of other things. Yeah. And yours is so. It, sh- it shifts so much. Oh, you yeah. know, there's like this high school story. There's mm-hmm. there's a nostalgia portion. There's like your history. Mm-hmm. There's the ghost story. There's the thriller. And how do you wrap your head around that? Um, that was, I guess, a kind of a my attempt to kind of capture the cadences of a life, I, I think, um, and where you shift from, you know, different different rhythms, you know, like the rhythms of youth of when it opens, the movie opens, and it's just full of, um, you know, me recapturing what it was like to be an 18-year-old and being full of ideas all the time. And I'd forgotten that. When I was making this movie, I, I was not that person in the beginning. I had to really research myself to rediscover who I was and to recapture that. And then, um, and then as you go along, you, you kind of grow up uh, as I was trying to convey that, I was trying to grow up. The, move, the, the the rhythms of the movie changes and it becomes more of a mystery and I become a kind of a detective trying to solve this great mystery of my life. Um, and, you know, things shift. Um, and um, I think, um, I don't know, I mean, I, people worried a little bit at first because it seems so different to take that kind of risky, um, that risk of like tone changes and mm-hmm. without any warning. But the thing is, I was very inspired, first of all, in the early days when I was making the original Shirkers by the French New Wave, and I still continue to love those movies because, you know, in the French New Wave, it just felt so free to me because they never quite warn you when they're going to shift from comedy to tragedy and back again without any warning. And this is kind of a freedom that's very true to life to me. Um, And I just wanted to reflect the spirit of the original Shirkers with this this Shirkers, Mm -hmm. this documentary as well, to kind of, you know, have that kind of... um, you know, to, to kind of have that kind of unexpected um, adventure of life reflected in film. Well, and then also in terms of the look of it and playing yeah. with, you know, there's, all, of course, already the contrast between the footage from the original Shirkers film and what you film today and the contemporary stuff, but there's also a lot of kind of, like, a- animated elements or ha- handmade elements, and, you know, it speaks to... Yeah the character that you've set up, the character of you, um, who's interested in sort of like scrapbooking and collage and um, putting together a lot of different kinds of elements. So could you talk about how you also wanted the look of the film to reflect that kind of um, chaos? Yeah, yeah. because it was supposed to be a kind of a reflection of the inside of my head. So I had to um, dig into what was the inside of my head in terms of the paper materials and the the graphic materials I had in front of me. And... um, I was, you know, for those who haven't seen the film, I was very much, when I was a teenager, I was, my background was like doing zines and making things out of, um, you know, collages, out of scraps and, you know, and making videos and things. Um, and so to to kind of start off this film, I had to kind of recreate that person, um, I guess, the, 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 the zine maker, you know, and the energy of that. And um, what was useful in making of Shirkers was that, we had very, you know, I became very accustomed to working with scraps and, find, and thinking of them as treasures from the zine background. So I wasn't actually um, discouraged when when I was trying to make this film and there was very little footage of George. Um, George is kind of a, a figure that kind of haunts the entire film and he's sinister and very, very present. But really, when it comes down to it, we only had less than 30 seconds total mm-hmm. of him 
footage ever in any format, photos, anything. Um, and there was very little footage of me and my friends as teenagers in 1982 because we didn't have, you know, video cameras and, um, I mean, you know, cell phones to get videos of themselves. So there's very little. I was looking between the margins of the original 16 millimeter film to find my friends doing the slate, you know, the clapperboard and, I mean, all that kind of stuff and just like stealing little bits and pieces and then forming them into, a, into you know, helping us build char them, their characters as, as, as they were. So that was, um, yeah, that was what we had to do. This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut, based on the novel by Richard Ford. USA Today raves wildlife is exquisite, with Mulligan giving an awards-worthy performance that crackles and flares. Wildlife opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. It's a whole process, and I, yeah. I, it's actually helpful because I was wondering if you could talk about that mm -hmm. writing process. Your vo voice guides us throughout the film, yeah. um, and did you write as you went and as yeah. you discovered those things? Like you said, that you know, you found this moment where mm -hmm. you'd see Jasmine with the clapperboard, or you'd yeah. see, you'd catch this glimpse of George, and you're looking at it through, yeah. through these adult eyes now. Mm -hmm. um, did you have a? Did you? How much did you shape in advance, and how much did you shift as you went? Um, it was always shifting every step of the way. Um, the, the wonderful thing about technology nowadays is that you can, you know, record yourself at home on them stupid little mic that you buy for 99 bucks on Amazon, as I did in my garage, because I, I edited this film in my garage. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just, um, you hate the way you sound. You always hate the way you sound for the first 10 takes. And then and then you adjust, and then you adjust, and then you adjust. And I, I wrote, I guess, a very, very, very rough rudimentary narration as I went along for the first, you know, 10 minutes just to set the movie up. Um, hated everything. And I don't think a single thing of the first maybe 70 drafts ever remained. And it's just, I was just always changing, mm -hmm. like line to line, word to word, right up to the very end. Um, so it kept morphing. And I guess the, the just the freedom of the fact that you can adapt so quickly and change um, modes so quickly and, and, and moods and tones so quickly, um, kind of maybe, maybe also because I hadn't been working in film for a while and suddenly being, um, you know, um, acquainted with like the whole range of, of the 21st century technology that was available to you now as a consumer at home. Um, I was like so freed by it that I just kept changing and it made me make more risky moves because you know that nothing's permanent. You can always reverse it, you know, as a filmmaker, you know that, and you can just always rewrite and switch and, you know, play something backwards, forwards, slow, fast. And there was so much freedom, you know, that you feel as a filmmaker now that I think I, I might've taken more risks than most people who are more you know, accustomed to what was available and just I'm more taking it for granted. I was like, my God, we can do this. It's so fun. Well, especially as someone who had this film ripped from your hands and thought like, that's the only copy that will ever exist. It must have been such a different experience yeah. knowing like, I can't lose this. I backed it up twice, I, you know? I backed it up 10 times <laughs> and put put all my footage in um, different places in my house because I'm paranoid. <laughs> I, I don't I don't trust, I'm a pessimist. I well, put it in different, I, I, put it, I put it in different places yeah. and then um, I put, and I sent some to New York for friends to keep in their house and some to keep in their work. And then it was like, you know, and, and different parts of LA as well in case of earthquake in one part of LA where I live that somebody else in a, you know, fire free, because I live near 
places that could catch fire. So I was like, that was also part of the process, my dealing with my paranoia about everything. Well, and who was working with you? Like, I know this must have been an extremely challenging film for an editor, and I was wondering if you could talk about your collaboration on that process and kind of who else was in the room to help you um, do this constant shaping exercise. Yeah, so I, um, it was me for the longest time. I could never get anyone to kind of believe in this thing for a long time. Because when you talk about this project, you sound like a crazy person. Like you have this footage and then you have some songs and you have, you want to do some narration. And yeah, you have a bunch of interesting friends that you can talk to and interview. But like, how are you going to string this together? No one could actually see it because no one had access to the inside of my head, which is really hard to convey. Um, so I worked on this, you know, uh, nobody, I, I didn't have any money, so I couldn't actually afford to hire somebody who was a professional, responsible American, uh, you know, documentary, editor who was, you know, I had them as friends. Um, and then I, I had, um, I tried to to talk in that CD, who was a, a great cinematographer, um, I mean, an editor um, who, who worked on the Wolfpack and and um, one of us. Um, and and I, um, she she was just, she, she wound up being my consultant, um, but she couldn't, you know, she couldn't work with me because she, she works in New York and her methods are different. I needed somebody who had maybe the patience and maybe the, you know, who, 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 who I could afford to, forced to sit next to me and edit this film with me. And so some a good friend of mine suggests that, you know, why don't I not look for editors, but look for an assistant editor, somebody junior, somebody who I could afford and then have the patience to sit with me and grow and learn. And so I found this 27-year-old um, um, skateboarder named Lucas Seller, who in LA, he's self-made, self-taught, um, you know, from Chicago and no, no feature credits really. Um, but I talked to him and we looked at, you know, some of the footage and we played music and I knew that he um, he had the same sense of rhythm and he was young enough to remember what it was like, you know, as a skateboarder and a kind of a counterculture kind of kid. And and he had that, that same kind of, you know, rebellious spirit I had. And he said he knew how to work After Effects, which is, I thought was very important to me to just kind of make, After Effects is the program that makes things fly around the screen, like the graphics that you see. And um, he was one of the people that couldn't know how to work this stuff. Um, Whereas like a lot of the traditional editors don't, and they, they usually send that fine graphics thing to the end of the process. Once you've actually done the responsible thing of story and structure, and then you send all of the things, the fun stuff off to some expensive place uh, far away that was that's gonna charge you way too much money to make something fly over something else on the screen or you know make something come alive, like some animation. But you know, I thought, why waste that money? And why do that last? Do that first, because I wanted to create the mood and the headspace of what it was like to be a teenager first. So Lucas and I sat in my garage for um, uh, a long time, and we listened to music, and we, we, we basically created, we started with montages, and just like all these things that you should never do, but in this film, in making this film, I had to do to just kind of get me back to that headspace. I just needed to be brought there. So we built a time machine. I mean, basically, we uh, built the time machine with graphics, moving graphics and music. Mm -hmm. um, I worked with a composer really early, much earlier than most people do. I worked with a composer starting like maybe, um, you know, eight months before the finish line or um, maybe even a year. Um, so that's a much longer time than most people do. Um, and then we built sound effects as well. Um, so Lucas and I worked in the, my garage for about seven and a half months, off and on, because I kept running out of money. 
and he kept having to take on little other projects. And then um, finally at the end, um, for the final five weeks, when Lucas was completely spent and just couldn't go any farther, and also because he was a young man, there's sudden storylines that were not so comfortable for him, um, you know, like certain darker things that he thought would make me seem unlikable. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to go there, because I thought the film was less good if you don't go certain places. Mm -hmm. So I found a second editor who was um, more mature and female, because I think women are much more honest with ourselves. And we were, we're, we're we can talk more honestly, and we're harder on ourselves, and we're darker people, and um, more heartless to, I mean, just a little bit more ruthless without, you know, with, with ourselves. And so, you know, she, she let me, she helped me go there um, to, to those places. And, um, you know, where, where I admit to certain things or certain things I said, and, you know, certain, certain, certain darker parts of the film, the more mature parts of the yeah. film uh, are brought to life with me um, working with, with uh, Kimberly Hassett, the second editor. So it was a huge collaboration, different people with different skill sets, and we all kind of came, like, and it just all flowed along pretty nicely. Well, and you've talked about this duality in the film mm. a lot about like child grown up, which is something that you know you described also as um, a preoccupation even when you yeah. were young. The idea that the like Holden Caulfield idea that um, you know you'd rather it's it's better to die. Like the the purpose of the original Shirkers is almost to say like preserve your youth and die rather yeah. than you know age and become this shell. <laughs> yeah. And in your editing process, you had it's like you had to address both sides with different people. Even you had yeah. somebody like engage with that that sort of like youthful. Um, anything can happen feeling, and then somebody who could who could look more realistically at things that were dark yeah. and hard. Yeah, because as a filmmaker, um, also because you know I was working with footage myself, which was really one of the hugest, most difficult things about making this film was having to see myself and hear myself. So I began like as a filmmaker, I started to put on different hats and just see it as a character, mm -hmm. like a person giving up terrible line reading or a terrible performance and then you edit around that um and so it, it stopped becoming personal i just wanted to tell, tell the best story possible um and and that was this i guess the later part of the film but the first part of the film was me recapturing what it felt like to be right to be young yeah well and i th I, I thought about that a lot i think about this every time there's a uh, uh, I, I see a personal documentary because mm. I've never done it and I don't think I could. It seems so painful. Yeah. And you talked about how hard it is to hear hear your own voice, see yourself on screen, but you did both times, like yeah. with, in, with a span of many right. years in between. So Yeah, the first time I didn't see myself, which is why I didn't want, one of the reasons why I didn't want to look in those boxes was I didn't want to see myself giving that horrible performance, um, you know, but um, but 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 then but then now having to do it, you can force to do it because the you know this 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 thing is like a train that just you know is just just rushing towards something, and you're on it and you have to make sure you 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 do something about it, um, and you you know make sure that the tracks are there so it doesn't fall off the cliff, um, and 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 so you you do it, you force yourself to 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 just confront yourself, um, and one of the things that's really interesting about. I guess um, watching this footage again and talking to my friends, circling back to what you mentioned earlier, me, Jasmine, and Sophie, the three characters who were involved in Trickers back then and are grown-ups, grown-ups now, is that we, we, you know, watching it and I realized um, that we haven't really grown up. Like, and also I would include the fourth character, Ben Harrison, who is yeah. the guy who did the original soundtrack, who's also our friend. Um, and also had his work stolen, so we went, yeah. went through this experience yeah. with you. And, and we, you know, there's something about all of us that, that was really kind of 
brutalized by this experience, even though none of them may may kind of vocalize it in that way. But it was just that we, none of us have children. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all like kind of childish. And we, we seem to be like teenagers suspended in amber. We still fight over the same things in the same way. Um, which is, which is, you know, you can fight with the same things. You might do it as grown up, but we do it in the same way, um, and that's disturbing. So, so, so it was just, you know, and and then Ben, like, you know, just seeing Ben, like, just like, oh my God, Ben, you're just still eighteen, that's mm. or nineteen, and it's just, you know, heartbreaking. And and hopefully with this thing, you know, they get part of their 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 youth back, and we can all grow up together, maybe. Um, do you want to tell them where you're going uh, yeah, next? To, Maybe I'd uh, like to join you. No, I'm running downtown <laughs> to do some crazy thing, um, which is at the Metrograph. They're playing, and I think you're missing it because it's on now. The, um, they call her Cleopatra Wong. That was shown that 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 clip of which that was in, yeah. So, so that's shot in Singapore. Yeah, uh, partly shot in Singapore, starring my. I, I didn't say that in my, the film either. She was my stepmom. Um, so what? clip, yeah, Mary. That's the thing I can't get over, but we don't have time to get into it. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, and then, I'm gonna do the Q and A for that somehow. And then I'm gonna introduce this film, which is rarely seen, which is Lovers on the Bridge, The Lovers on the Bridge by Leo's Carrex, which is a film from 1991, and it's really hard to see. And it's, a print has been flown over from Paris for the screening at the Metrograph. And I'm gonna say a few words at the beginning about how it saved my life after Shirkus. Yeah. Um, Thank you for, for being <laughs> here double and bell. tolerating me. <laughs>